Hello, would you like to turn to uh, Acts chapter 9? Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless, They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias? Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. And asked for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Do you ever wonder why why some people in the Bible are mentioned by name, and others are not? Strange that, isn't it? Some people get a mention and their name is given to us, and other people we just know them as the woman who did this, or the man who did that, or the prophet who did the other. Someone suggested, especially in the, in the New Testament documents, that uh, when the names are mentioned, it's so that people can go and check it out with that person if they wanted to. Because at the time when these books are being written and so forth, there are people around and about who still were the eyewitnesses of these things. So if you were not sure, did this really happen to Saul? Well, you could go to, Tars- you go to Damascus and speak to a guy called Ananias and get it from the horse's mouth. Because you know his name. And you know his reputation. For simplicity's sake this morning, I'll call Saul Paul. Otherwise I'm going to get myself in such a tangle with Saul and Paul and Paul and Saul. I'll just call him Paul, although I know his name here at this moment in time is called Saul. But actually he has both names. It's going to make life much easier for me. And, uh, and this account of Paul is probably the best known account of a conversion. It's important because Luke will... in will include it in his book here three times. You probably know Luke is writing on a parchment. 
those who know these things say a parchment can only grow to a certain length. These days we can make books that you know almost go on forever, don't they? A thousand pages forever. Well, you couldn't do it in the old days. So a scroll was a maximum length. And someone said that Acts is the maximum length. You can't get any more in it. Which is interesting when you see that Luke records this story not once, not twice, but three times. Once in this way and twice at the lips of Paul. It's gripping stuff, isn't it? Heartwarming stuff, thrilling stuff to see an aggressive enemy of Jesus Christ and his people completely changed into one of the most effective advocates for the gospel ever known. And it all seems to happen in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, Paul encounters the risen Christ. When you read about his encounter at his own pen, In 1 Corinthians 15, you find that this encounter is precisely of the same nature as Jesus appearing to the other apostles. This is not a vision in his head. It's not, I can see the Lord in a kind of subjective way. This is an objective vision in exactly the same way that Jesus appeared to the others in different circumstances. It's comparable to those. And the fact that Paul's companions didn't see it shouldn't detain us because Jesus actually only appeared to specific people that he knew beforehand. Other people didn't get to see it. Now, it may be true that some people have a dramatic conversion experience that seems to turn their life up completely upside down in the moment and as a result of which they're saved. But it doesn't compare to this because... People these days do not have an objective vision of Jesus in the same way that Paul did here. Other people's experience of conversion, and yours may be like this, is much less dramatic. Perhaps even that you cannot point to a time or a date or a place where you knew the Lord for the first time. But you know this, once you were in darkness and now you're in light. You know this, once you were dead and now you're alive. Well, you knew this, that once you were not part of God's people, now you are part of God's people. Three ways that Paul himself and Peter use to describe what Christians are all about. And Paul is a religious man, confident in his own understanding of Scripture, of what is and isn't true about God, about himself and the world. He's earnest, he's sincere, he's passionate, and he couldn't be more wrong. And the essence of Christianity is this. Did Jesus rise from the dead? People sometimes say, I really struggle with this aspect of Christianity. Or I like that part of Christian belief, but can't really handle this part. And our answer can be, well, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then you have to accept everything he said. But if he didn't, What's the point of worry about any of it? The crucial thing is, did he or did he not? And Paul, at length in 1 Corinthians 15, testifies that Jesus has risen from the dead. And therefore, this encounter with Jesus is what transforms Paul's whole way of thinking. No wonder he takes three days, as it were, to download to wipe out, erase almost, all that he thought before, so he can now understand things from a completely different perspective. He must rethink his whole theology of God and salvation. 
It's a profound turnaround for a man convinced he was right and finds it's wrong. But I don't want to talk about him this morning. I want to talk about two other people in this story. Well, not quite in this story. One is, but one isn't quite in this story, but is affected or affects this story. And their names are Stephen and Ananias. And I would like to suggest to you that without those two men, this story would not have happened, perhaps even could not have happened in this way at this time and had such an effect. And so if you want a title for this morning, it's Working with God in the Transformation of People's Lives. What we've seen here, what I've been talking about, is all of God. Only God can truly transform someone from within. So we're in danger of standing back and saying, Lord, get on with it, do more. Which, of course, is what he's about. But we do have a part to play in that. And by introducing these two men, I hope you'll see at least some of the part that we can play. Luke has already introduced us to Paul. We saw him in chapter 7, verse 58, standing guard over the clothes of the people who've stripped off their robes and rolled up their sleeves and are slinging rocks at Stephen to kill him. And a few verses further on we're told that Saul was there, as if we hadn't got it the first time, giving approval to his death. So Luke, as he tells us the story, knows he's going to get to Paul's conversion very shortly. This is a well-constructed document. He's not making it up as he goes along. He knows what he's going to put in there, and he knows very soon he's going to speak about it, the momentous occasion in Paul's life when Jesus so intervenes that the man is never the same again. But he chooses to slip him in here, give us a quick glimpse and the circumstances of the first time that we see Saul. And it's in the context of Stephen being given a hard time, both metaphorically and physically. Stephen has been accused of blasphemy against Moses and against God. He isn't speaking blasphemy. He's being misunderstood. Recognize that kind of thing? You ever misunderstood? It's a horrible place to be, isn't it? where you do one thing or say one thing and other people choose willfully to misread you, to accuse you of things. You say, no, 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 that's not what I'm about. That's what Stephen is here accused of. He's accused of speaking against God and against his temple, but he's in fact speaking out from those very things, explaining things. So he's seized and brought before the Sanhedrin, which is made up, you will remember, of Sadducees and Pharisees. Paul was a Pharisee and was probably in the gathering before which Stephen was brought. And he would have listened. He would have seen Stephen and he would have listened to his defense. And as a man who knew his scriptures, actually he would have had to agree, even if he didn't want to, that Stephen was smack on line. He told the history as it was, but his interpretation of it was slightly novel, and that would have sown a seed in Saul's mind. His clear presentation, therefore, of Jewish history and his courageous accusation against the Sanhedrin will certainly have given Paul pause for thought. But I would like to suggest to you 
that that wasn't a big thing that would affect Paul's life from this point on. Perhaps what impressed Paul more was the way Stephen died. Someone said, we as Christians ought to live well, but we ought to die well too. Now this is not going to be a morbid mourning. It's all right, we're not going to be going on about death. But actually, if what we believe is the truth, when we face the last enemy, Paul says, it should truly affect how we see it, shouldn't it? We live in a society that is absolutely terrified of death. Rigid with fear. But the whole point about the Christian message is that Jesus has overcome death in all its forms and takes us beyond it into life in all its fullness. So as Luke's eyewitnesses tell him what they saw on this occasion, they distinctly remember that Stephen's face was like the face of an angel. Paul would have seen that. This is the man who's been falsely accused of blasphemy, the most serious charge you could lay against any Jew, because the punishment for that is death by stoning. And in face of a furious mob who are gnashing their teeth, isn't that a graphic illustration, especially if they're gnashing their teeth at you? It's a terrifying prospect. Stephen looked up to heaven and told of what he saw. This man whose face looks like an angel. When Luke is going around asking people about this incident so he can write it in his book, he's making careful investigation. The thing that struck the ones that are telling him about this part was that his face looked like an angel. Bear in mind, he's before the Sanhedrin. So he's talking to Pharisees, isn't he? And priests, who by the time that Luke is asking them, have become believers. And this is what sticks in their mind. This man's face looked like an angel. And he's staring down the gun barrel. He's contemplating the noose. He can almost visualize the stones coming at him. And his face is like the face of of an angel. This man truly is filled with the Spirit of God. And surely the vision of heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God would have filled his face with joy, a very Lucan idea, filled as he was with the Spirit. And surely Saul must have thought, Paul must have thought, is this how bad men die? Not in my experience it isn't. And he would have seen some. And as the mob bade for his blood, rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him, what's Stephen's response? To mutter curses, to call down heaven against them, to curse and to swear against those people who are going to take his life? Not at all. It is to pray for their forgiveness. Is this how bad men die? No, it isn't. Paul would have seen Roman crucifixions up to now. He would know that they would harangue the Romans and harangue the passers-by in their agony for days at a time, screaming and calling down curses. The last thing they do is pray for the forgiveness of those who are committing the act against them. So perhaps Paul had heard of or even seen for himself some of the great wonders and miraculous signs that Luke tells us 
Stephen had done among the people. Maybe Paul had heard some of Stephen's extraordinary wisdom against whom no one could speak. But I would suggest to you that the most impressive thing about Stephen that would stick in Paul's mind is this vision of him dying, and as he's dying, asking for the forgiveness of his enemies. Paul would later write about men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. That's what he promptly sought to do. This truth has lodged in his mind that surely this man is speaking of something he really does know. This is not how you act if you're a bad man. You say, okay, okay, I give up. Really, I didn't mean it. I'm not, you know, it's not true. I recant. That's what people do. But not Stephen. And the only way Paul could block out the image of an innocent man praying for his persecutors was to launch into an aggressive, vicious campaign of persecution against Stephen's companions. This is how Luke puts it here. He persecuted the followers of the way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. That's Paul's testimony in chapter 22. Many times when he speaks about it in chapter 26, he went from one synagogue to another to have them punished and he tried to force them to blaspheme. And here Luke says he was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He's trying to block out Isn't this what people do? Block out the truth. It is too uncomfortable by half. Because if it's true, it means that everything he's held dear at this point is completely falsely rooted, if you like. Oh, he knows the truth, but he just doesn't understand it right. And he will have to change his way. So rather than that, he forces persecutions. And would not the manner of these simple folk facing persecution and peril and loss have affected him all the more every time he takes one and arrests them and drags them off to prison their reaction is similar to Stephen's and every time he acts viciously against them their response is one of grace and love and he hates it what was their secret the journey from Jerusalem where Paul's left to Damascus is 140 miles and it would have taken them on foot about a week. Paul would have travelled with officers of the Sanhedrin who are a kind of police force and since he was a Pharisee he would not have walked with them, he would have walked on his own. He's got 140 miles, seven days of walking on his own with nothing to do but think. So although this is a sudden capitulation to Jesus, my suggestion to you is that actually over these seven days, if not before, Paul is thinking things through. The journey would take them through Galilee. And he would know who exercised a very powerful and warm ministry in Galilee. He would have been coming up against people regularly who spoke warmly about Jesus. This man has got seven days to do nothing but think, think, think about what he's doing. So when, as he nears Damascus, he is confronted by the incredible vision of the risen Christ, he is ready to surrender because of the witness of Stephen and maybe other people who have been having a benign effect upon this wicked man over the days. It wasn't therefore just an explosion 
of confrontation and suddenly it all happens. That's why Luke has introduced him earlier on because he wants us to see the effect. My friends, what are you doing? I often ask you this. What are you doing at 5 to 12 tomorrow or the next day or the next day? I tell you what, you're having an effect on somebody's life. That's what you're doing. We cannot convert a single person. We cannot change anybody's life. That's a work of God's Spirit, applying the work of Jesus to the glory of God. Only God can do that. But what we can do is live such lives of upright goodness that people see something of God in us. Think back to your own conversion, if you can remember that, and the people involved in it. And I would almost guarantee that for every one of you, there would have been people before that a moment of conversion who had this lovely effect, whose lives impressed you. And suddenly when someone presented the truth to you, you thought, ah, that's what it's all about. And they provide you with a living example. So I think Stephen, facing difficulty in trial, notice none of it was success. He was falsely accused, and then he faced death. It wasn't the... The miraculous things I would suggest to you that would have impressed Paul so much as the way he faced difficulty. Do you know what you're going to face this week? The trials and tribulations? Perhaps you do, perhaps you don't. Maybe it's the grace of God that we don't know half of what's coming. Then we don't have to worry about it too much beforehand, but some of us worry about not knowing about what's coming, don't we? So we worry about the fact that we don't know what's coming and all that. Anyway, you know, whatever. But I tell you, it's not necessarily the blessings of God upon your life that will impress others. It will be the way you handle difficulties, the way you respond to things. My brother-in-law was telling me a story when he was in Africa and uh, uh, they, were, they had come in from doing something and there were a hundred people there coming in for supper and they had, the cooks had made supper for a hundred people which was a cauldron about that deep and about that wide full of chicken no, duck, duck casserole, and two of those with rice. And as the hundred people gather in the room, the chefs came in and put this very carefully on the table, which collapsed. And the thing fell to the ground, tipped forward, and the whole lot went over the whole floor. The chap who's leading it, the, the pastoral guy, highly respected man, the, the whole place went just absolutely frozen moment. He went up and walked up to the wall and stood at the wall. It seemed like hours, says my brother-in-law, but it was a minute. And everyone is, there's not a word spoken. Came back and said, well, what we need to do is tidy this up. So you do this, you do that, you do the other, blah, 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 blah. blah. And they ate all the dry rice and no one ever made a reference to that ever again and no one complained about the food. But that's gripped my brother-in-law's mind. He said that was how to deal with adversity. He could have exploded with wrath and anger and said all the things that people say. But what a witness to all those folk about how to deal with adversity. You're going to face difficult things this week. That's almost for sure. Because that's life, isn't it? The way you face them profoundly affects the lives of other people. Other people are used to reacting off the hip. And aggressively and argumentatively and all those sort of stuff. But when we respond with grace and kindness and patience, 
It has an effect. Let's move on quickly to the other guy, the other end of the story. So Paul is saved. He's converted, whatever word you want to be. He's put in Christ. And off he goes to blind. He's blinded there. Has to be led like a child into the, the city. Ananias is the other person in the story. Um, he's not the Ananias of chapter 5, the chap who got executed. He's a different one. He's a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews, but Luke just calls him here a disciple. Whatever he may be among other people, he's just a disciple, a child of the king. And I love the way Luke describes here, verse 10. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. What is he doing? doesn't say. But you know for sure this is not on his agenda. He hasn't written down, Monday, go and lay hands on a bloke called Saul, who's been blinded by Jesus, and see him converted. He hasn't got that on his agenda. It's not part of his program. Whatever he's doing, if he's, if he's doing his gardening... Or talking with people, having a cup of coffee in the equivalent of Starbucks or something, or chatting to people, or doing some study. Whatever he's doing, this isn't part of it. That's an important point to know. But the moment God speaks to him, he just says one word, Ananias. And instantly he has Ananias' full attention. Yes, Lord. That's all he has to say. He doesn't have to harangue him. doesn't have to do you know, things with burning bushes and all that sort of stuff. He just says one word, Ananias. And Ananias is so in tune, whatever he's doing, doing the crossword or whatever, talking to people, he's right there with the Lord. Yes, Lord. The way we live our lives, we have to make sure that we are at God's disposal all the time. Even when we are deeply embedded into the things that are our responsibility. And so we should be. How did God call him? Well, it sounds like a direct word into his mind, in a vision. What did he see in his vision? Doesn't know, but however it occurs, he's instantly responsive. And what changes and adjustments would he have to make to his day? Because he's given explicit instructions, not guesswork here. Go to this street, to that house, you'll see that guy by this name and he is praying. Do you notice this? And he's... And he's already seen in a vision a bloke called Ananias, that's you, come to see him. So before Ananias has even heard of this, Paul has already told, God has already told Paul this is going to happen. So confident is he that his servant will obey. Well, understandably, Ananias is a bit disturbed about this. How honest are you with God? Because you find in the Bible people are breathtakingly honest. Would you have said, yes, Lord, but? Would you? Most of us would think we would say, yes, Lord, and go off muttering and moaning under our breath, which is probably more of what I do. But Ananias doesn't mutter and moan under his breath. He tells it to God. Lord, just so we know who we're talking about here, this is the guy who has come here to polish off your servants. We are talking about the same bloke, aren't we? I mean, you are asking me to go into the lion's den, aren't you? This is what it's been. So he doesn't go off muttering and moaning that he's been given this job to do and he doesn't really want to do it. He actually mutters and moans to God. The servants in the Bible take their moans to God and God can take it. You've got a problem? Take it to God. Don't mutter and moan behind his back and talk to other people about it. Take it to God. And then I says, Lord, I've got a problem with this. 
And God says, problem or not, you're going to go and do it anyway because I've got a job for this man to do and you're the guy to go and tell him he's going to do it. So Ananias, bless his heart, off he goes. God has plans for him. And whenever I read this story, I often wonder and shudder at the thought, if supposing Ananias says, no, Lord, I'm not, like a bloke called Jonah once did. What would have happened next? Praise the Lord, we don't know, because it didn't happen. But without further ado, he obeys. He does so wholeheartedly, not like Jonah, moaning and and complaining the whole way through it. But notice in verse 17, as he goes to the house, he must have been trembling with fear, but it doesn't say that though, enters the house, places his hands on Saul, and look what he says. What's the first word he says? This is to the bloke who's come with letters from the chief priests and with a reputation to match, who's been dragging off people by the scruff of their neck, men, women and children, and thrusting them in prison and seeing them stoned to death. This is a vicious, aggressive man. You don't want anything to do with this bloke. And God says, he's mine and he's got a job for you to do, do, so go and tell him. The first word Ananias uses is brother. Brother Saul. If God says this man is saved, he's my brother. So I don't think he does go fearing for his life. I think he's confident in God. God has done a work in him. He instantly grasps who Paul has become and treats him like that from the very first. And this is incredibly important. Because Paul now, as a Christian, is persona non grata to the Pharisees. They're going to hate him for it. He's a turncoat. What are they going to think of this guy? He knows what he can expect from that law, so he's completely cut off from all his social network. Where can he go? About 15 years ago, we had a volunteer at Ashburnham Place. You'll remember, French girl with an Arabic background as well, Muslim background. When she became a Christian about the age of 18, her brothers said, we'll kill you. She ran for her life. And they, were, they meant it. They would have executed her. They would have seen it as execution, not just murder. 18-year-old ran for her life. She couldn't go back and see her family. She ended up in England. She came to Ashburnham Place to be a volunteer. And it suddenly dawned on me This woman has no other family. Not just the family of God is just a kind of extra family, an extra blessing that we all have and we all have family as well. This girl didn't have anything. If we were not her family, we were not her family. She had nobody. She called me dad. Which was a nice novel thing, but she meant it. All the men of my age were called dad by her because she didn't have a dad she could go to. She didn't have a mum she could go to. Suddenly, by becoming a Christian, everything had changed for her. It changed for Paul here. And Ananias says, you belong to us. You're one of ours. We're in it together. This is an incredibly brave thing to do, but a very important thing to do. When people are saved, my friends, we have to make them into good disciples. We can't save them. We can prepare the ground for them. God does the converting. And after that, it's our task to say, come on in. You belong to us. A place of belonging. 
And Ananias, in that just that one simple word, says it all to Paul. This is where he belongs. Barnabas will step into the story a little later on, be hugely encouraging, but Ananias sets it all off. Healed of his blindness, filled with the Spirit, Paul is on a new track, but he needs to belong to the people of God, and we need to express that out. So that's our task. So we have a part to play in seeing people's lives change. We have a part to play in the kind of lives we live that are lovingly provocative to other people and make them think, I don't quite understand how they can be like they are, which opens up all sorts of possibilities so that when God wants to do the business, they're warmed up for it. And when people have been saved, we don't just say, thanks very much, goodbye, enjoy yourself, now you've got your ticket to heaven, as it were. We say, you belong to us. Come on in. Not in a kind of possessive way, that you belong to us and not to anyone else, but you belong to the body of Christ. We are believers together. Now we're in this to support. And out of this comes the most effective evangelist the church probably has ever known. And two guys called Stephen and Ananias have a very important part to play in that. So what will you be doing this week? I tell you what, your lifestyle will be touching other people. And the way we draw one another in, say we belong to one another, this is our family, this is our place of belonging, is expressed humanly, not just in God. We have a very large part to play in God's work of transforming people with his gospel. Let me pray. Your word, Father, is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, and certainly Paul was pierced by you here. But we see also the effect and the godly effect and the right effect of other people's lives playing their part in that. Now Lord as we head off into the week with the normal responsibilities that we have before us will you so fill us with your spirit that the way we respond to good, bad or whatever is to the glory of God. So fill us with your spirit, Lord, that we will think gracious thoughts, speak gracious words, and act in gracious ways. And whatever extra tasks may be lying before us, Lord, when you want us to do a specific thing, will you find us so walking in step with you by your spirit that when you ask of us something that was not on our agenda, we can be instantly available to you so that you can get on with the work that only you can do while we do the things that you want us to do. We are your servants, Lord, and we look forward to this week as we live it in your company. In Jesus' name.